The theory that flying saucers are material objects from outer space, manned by a race originating on some other planet, is not a complete answer. However strong the current belief in saucers from space, it cannot be stronger than the Celtic faith in the elves and the fairies, or the medieval belief in lutins, or the fear throughout the Christian lands in the first centuries of our era of demons and satyrs and fauns. Certainly, it cannot be stronger than the faith that inspired the writers of the Bible, a faith rooted in daily experiences with angelic visitations. In short, by suggesting that modern UFO sightings might be the result of experiments of a scientific or even super-scientific nature conducted by a race of space travelers, we may be the victims of our ignorance, an ignorance that finds its cause in the fact that idiots and pendants alike, through a common reaction that psychologists could perhaps explain if they were not its first victims, have covered the fairy faith with the same ridicule as other idiots and pendants cover the UFO phenomenon. The realization that rumors of the real meaning of the UFO phenomenon set in motion the deepest and most powerful mental mechanisms makes acceptance of such facts very difficult, especially since the facts ignore frontiers, creeds, or races, defy rational statement, and turn around the most logical predictions as if they were mere toys. It is difficult to come to grips with the UFO phenomenon, for although it clearly evolves through phases, its effects are diffuse and cannot be dated very precisely. We have to rely on legends, hearsay, and extrapolations. Much can be accomplished, however, once we realize that the observational material on hand since World War II, the 20,000 or so clear-cut dated reports of UFOs in official and private files, is nothing but a resurgence of a deep stream in human culture known in older times under various other names. Taken from Chapter 2 of today's book, Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallée. And my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the dynamic duo Jay and Rory Wicks. Hey, hey. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. Since its release in 1968, few books in the world of ufology have drawn more praise and derision than Jacques Vallée's seminal exploration of the folkloric connections to the modern UFO phenomenon, Passport to Magonia. Arranged over five exhaustive chapters and one incredible appendix, Passport to Magonia lays out the argument that the modern UFO phenomenon, thought by many ufologists at the time to have begun with the Kennel Arnold sighting in 1947, was in fact a far older and far stranger phenomenon than many were willing to entertain. In fact, in Valet's own words in the preface to the 2014 edition, many of his contemporary ufologists hated the book upon its release. Quote, the existing theories of extraterrestrial visitation that I had helped formulate in the two earlier books had become so well established that my attempt to link modern sightings with the historical material I had uncovered was resented as treason. 
Furthermore, quote, the appendix itself, a compendium of over 900 cases of unexplained landings over one century, was seen as heresy at a time when major research groups were clinging to the idea that close encounters were a new effect, the late stage of a phenomenon that had gradually approached the human population. And while this does show that not much has changed in the world of ufology, nuts and bolts still war with the woo crowd across the Twitter battlefield, further complicating the reception this book received was the absolute absurdity of many of the close encounters detailed inside. And make no mistakes, some of these stories are absolutely absurd, featuring tales of flying airships dragging anchors across the earth and mysterious fairies whose behavior remains as enigmatic as our modern UFO visitors. But rather than get caught up in the mires of craft descriptions, prophetic warnings from the visitors, and the truly illogical behavior of the UFO crafts and their occupants, Valet argues that the absurdity may only serve to distract us from the core commonality between all such tales, being that, since our earliest records, something has shown a vested interest in our species, something which comes from the sky and may well originate from space or Elfland or the distant and fabled paradise of Magonia. Or, as Valet more eloquently puts it, quote, the modern global belief in flying saucers and their occupants is identical to an earlier belief in the fairy faith. The entities described as the pilots of the craft are indistinguishable from the elves, sylphs, and lutins of the Middle Ages. Through the observation of unidentified flying objects, we are concerned with an agency our ancestors knew well and regarded with terror. We are prying into the affairs of the secret commonwealth. In Chapter 1, Visions of a Parallel World, Valet lays out what, to many modern UFO-files, would sound like the ancient astronaut theory, which posits that alien races may have had influence upon, or at least visited, ancient cultures. He opens with Alberto Reyes Lujer's famed 1952 expedition to investigate Mexico's Pyramid of Inscriptions, inside which was discovered a massive sarcophagus which bears an etching on its lid that some claim depicts an ancient man in the process of operating a complex technological device akin to a spaceship. He then relates this to a dizzying barrage of ancient corollaries, including both findings from other ancient sites, such as 4,000-year-old carvings of helmeted spacemen found in Japan, to the flaming chariots that cross the biblical sky. It is here that, surprisingly, we see the return of some old friends to us here at Noctivigant, the Secret Teachers, who you guys might remember from uh, Gary Lockman's Secret Teachers of the Western World. As Valet is presenting ancient tales of incredible aerial visitations, he brings up the fact that the phenomenon did not go unnoticed by the people of its time. And in fact, it is on those earliest musings that the structure of Valet's argument begins to take shape. Plutarch, the Greek Platonist philosopher, posited that between man and the Godhead, there exists an intermodal kind of life, which partakes of both divinity and mortality, a thought echoed by many Hermeticists and Platonists at the time. If placed in the cosmology defined by the Western esoteric tradition, such entities would exist in the objective inner reality detailed by the likes of Sirowardi, Dante, and Jung. The Hermetic tradition even tried, through various means, to establish contact with these entities, which they called elementals. Paracelsius, who you may remember is the father of much of our modern medical practices, even went as far as to write a whole book on such entities, warning that such beings may only appear before us as required by some sort of cosmic mechanism, a way for the universe to clue us into the realities which our minds often ignore, and to make compacts with them is an endeavor fraught with peril. Valet then notes the strange behaviors of these entities, 
One such instance being the story of Fascius Cardin, an Italian mathematician who, in 1491, reported contact with seven people from another world who wore glimmery togas and breastplates made from crimson steel, whom, after telling him that they were men born from air and subject to both birth and death, gave contradictory explanations about the nature of the universe, then departed. This story is put up against more modern, yet equally inexplicable occurrences from the body of UFO canon. In many stories, witnesses who claimed contact with UFOs, and more specifically their occupants, reported bizarre behavior on the part of the others, which not only beguiles reason, but ventures into outright absurdity when examined closely. As examples, he offers up numerous cases of crafts landing, only for the occupants to step out, make eye contact with someone, then step back in and take off. Or the Kentucky Goblins, in which supposed extraterrestrial goblinoids laid siege to one small family's farm over several nights for no discernible reason. However, it is the illogical nature of these encounters which, to Valet, seems to indicate a much deeper mechanism at play. He offers up the metaphor of a dog watching a human write out complex mathematics on a whiteboard. To the dog, the behavior of the human is strange and, as far as it can determine, serves no practical or logical purpose which would make any kind of sense to a dog. This may just be the exact relationship between us and these others, in that the illogical nature of their actions only seems that way because we lack the ability to perceive the world in the same way they do. In other words, until our consciousness has evolved to the point that our vision of the world more closely aligns with that of these mysterious strangers, their ways will always be inexplicable to us. And that brings us to our first discussion question. Woo. So, on the topic of absurdity, uh, as obviously this first chapter had a lot to say about that, uh, what other purposes could the absurd have for the intelligence behind the phenomenon? Is it intentional or an accidental artifact of interacting with beings we are not yet prepared to understand, as Valet suggests? What do you guys think? So, full disclosure, I am in a terrible mood today, and I was in a terrible mood throughout the bulk of uh, reading this book, and so it is coloring my perception. And uh, I was ranting to Nick about this a couple of days ago. I'm increasingly starting to think that uh, that John Keel was right, and uh, the non-people and everything that comes and visits this planet are a pack of assholes, and they exist only to confuse, torment, and deceive us. And so I think that the entire purpose of the absurd is they think we're stupid war apes and they think it's funny to make us scared. Okay, well, there's the nuclear nihilism perspective. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess I'll try and uh, be a little bit more uh, optimistic somehow. But I mean, I think uh, honestly, I think that uh, that Jacques Vallée is onto something here. I think that in a way we 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 don't we aren't prepared to understand it at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that is because, uh, because we haven't evolved to reach a level where what they're doing would make sense to us. The example with the dog is actually a super good example Mm -hmm. of, uh, like showing the the differences, right? Because a dog doesn't understand 90% of what we do that isn't taking them on a walk. Right. So when, these other entities show up and do whatever it is that whatever it is that they're doing, you know, be it uh, a UFO sighting, be it a uh, be it getting food, get, uh, you know, trading food, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. We don't we don't necessarily we might not understand what their why is behind that, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a why. OK, we just might not be ready and might not be prepared for it. And that's OK. One thing that 
I think we can't get past is, and Jacques Vallée brings this up repeatedly throughout the book, is the similarities between modern day UFO sightings, things that have happened, uh, that, you know, whatever, uh, you know, that people have seen, and some of what we as a society even go so far as worshiping right with religion and folk ta- or you know folk tales whatever it might be and my and that brings up the question of what if that's the point for them creating worship creating worship i mean and there is certainly uh parts of the ufo community that believe something like that I, i've heard at, weirdly enough, uh, Tom DeLong, some of the crazier things he said has been in line with that, where the aliens represent kind of different uh, factions of small G gods who are attempting to kind of feed upon our emotional energies, our worship, our devotion or our pain and suffering. And they kind of each have different flavors thereafter and things like that. Well, what made me think about it was like for the vast, I'd say probably the vast majority of this book, he compares a lot of UFO sightings to Celtic like fairies Mm -hmm. and fairy tales and what have you. And what, so that, of course, my mind immediately went to, uh, the tabletop game that we play, Changeling the Lost, which is based off of the same lore, especially with the word gentry being thrown around throughout that whole book. I'm not going to lie, like, my butthole puckered a little every time because I, years of learning to fear that word are ingrained in me. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, yeah. Right, right there, right there with you. Like, but it, it, it got my, it got my brain thinking. It's like, well, what do the Fae, in changing the lost and changing themselves feed off of they feed off emotion yeah and what does things like ufo sightings what do things like uh like that they're that they're obviously trying to create what is it that they're doing they're creating these powerful emotions i mean yeah you're not going to find many experiencers out there who even if it's just the yeah, I saw a UFO in the sky usually they're shook usually oh, yeah. it, it is a pretty profound experience for them Absolutely. Uh, so there, there, there's also, uh, we talked about this a little bit way back in the first episode with the Mothman prophecies. There is also the idea of absurdity as it plays into Zen Buddhism with the mm-hmm. Koas and it, show me your true face, the face before you were born. And the idea that to a certain extent, absurdity is the path that leads you out of the lie that keeps you bound to the false material world. So if I go down the other path of interpreting this as they're doing this for a purpose, that's not just to torment us because they're a pack of asshole teenagers that found a gang of helpless squirrels hey, and are throwing rocks. But they gave those they gave that nice man some pancakes. They did give that nice man pancakes. <laughs> Which we're gonna get to. It's my and favorite story yes, in this book. It's a very good story. And it it does directly contradict what my dead black little heart wants to believe because it protects <laughs> me from disappointment. But again again, the the Zen Buddhist koas are designed to be absurd because you need to in that tradition there is a belief that you need to meditate upon absurdity in order to realize that everything is inherently absurd. Yeah, no, that's actually a really that's a really cool point because no matter uh no matter how you shake it, no matter how you look at it, even if we go so far as looking at our secret teachers from uh Gary Lockman's book, one thing that was very common amongst all of them was how they were 
uh, looked at by outsiders, which yeah. for a lot of them was they were looked at like they were absurd trying to get to that next and like trying to get to that next level of uh, consciousness or whatever you want to call it is going to be a little crazy. Well, Jesus was a lunatic. Oh, yeah. Certifiably. Well, and innately, what that's going to do, though, is take you out of the society everyone else is operating in because you're going right. to be. I mean, again, you got I'm trying to think. If we assume that, yes, it is that levels of consciousness are a thing like like uh, Valet suggests here, a dog views the world in, by completely different metrics than right. we do. We can only assume aliens would be just as different from us. Right. No, absolutely. So because of that, by moving towards their level, you're innately going to be leaving the rest of your race behind. It, it makes me it actually makes me think of and, I, you know, we shout this guy out all the time on this podcast, but EXO. Uh, yeah. Um, it makes me think of he did a, a whole uh, episode about like the different levels of consciousness, like mm -hmm. a book that was written about it. And it made me that a lot of this book made me think about how we as a society absolutely need to evolve to those higher echelons of consciousness in order to get a better grasp, uh, a better understanding of what it is that they might be trying to do. So. Yeah. So I just had a weird thought. You know Ooh. how there's like those those Skyrim mods and like those those amnesia mods which will do things like turn the monster into pedo bear or turn all right. the dragons into into Thomas the Tank. Yeah. Um, God, that one fucking freaks me out. I, it's my favorite one uh, personally. <laughs> fucking but freaks me out. I, I just had this weird idea of like some some lay buddhist and hindu people will kind of make the argument and this is a vast oversimplification this is not actual theology but there some people will when you're first starting out on that path make the example of like samsara which is the cycle that we're in or maya which is the name for the the physical world that is the lie it's kind of like a video game it's a video game that we forgot is a video game and we're stuck inside of it. And there is a belief, particularly in Buddhism, in that there are some people called bodhisattvas that are that they know it's a video game and they can leave, but they're coming back to try and guide us out of that final level. And part of me is looking at some of this shit and going, are those video game mods? Yeah, like, no, it's, it's just the kid who, uh, in your class who has the game shark. Yeah, no, exactly. If it's just like and like, you know, uh, at one point in these in in this book, like there's, you know, there's the airships as in literal ships with sails and anchors going around and everyone's going, what the fuck is that? Was that a video game mod that was really popular for a while? And after a while, the game devs were like, stop it. Stop it. You are breaking the code. You can't <laughs> use that. It's disabled. You can't have it anymore. <laughs> you are scaring the NPCs. Yeah, we're, we're, don't worry. We're going to go over a lot of the airship stuff later on. You got to watch out with that with that uh, that way of thinking there, Jay, because next you're going to be with the Matrix people thinking that we're living in a simulation. I mean, I, I don't. Here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing. According to according to Buddhist and Hindu thought and most Christian Gnostic thought, we are literally living in a simulation. 
yes, it's just not in a simulation that they like the people that believe we're literally living in the Matrix think it is. No, I don't fucking believe that because I'm not an idiot. Well, um, I, mean, I think that if we do live in a Matrix, it's not of a technological nature. It's more of a. I don't know, levels of reality and, uh, nature. And that's actually yeah. more what I'm driving at is, again, this is this is metaphor of it's like it, that is the equivalent of a video game mod if this was a video game. Wait, that's that. And again, I, I that's just a thought that popped into my head. Well, it was a good thought. I enjoyed it. You know, what's interesting is what you got me thinking there is, I mean, this is my I guess the only other explanation I thought of other than uh, what Valet would suggest being that we just don't understand because our brains are just different, we're at a different level than them, uh, would be that the absurd, if you look at what it does, I mean, you see something that's impossible, no matter what it's got, you know, again, like Rory said, it shakes you, it, it will open up your world, even if you really don't want it to happen. So I, I kind of got the image in my head of imagine you walk into a room full of sleeping people and you try to wake one of them up. Like and they've been asleep their whole life. They open their eyes to look around at this room with all these. No, they're gonna have no idea what the hell is going on. What if it's something like that? It's an attempt by something above to try to wake you up. I mean, I think that I think that's very plausible. And then the sleeper just goes back to sleep because they don't want to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you think about it, like that that is that's very true in a lot of ways because if you look at a lot of the people who are very, um like pro getting the word out there about UFOs. Okay. Pro UFO. Yeah. Pro UFO. A lot of these people uh, with some exceptions, obviously are well-educated. They're well, like well-versed in what their job was prior to this. And a lot of them weren't scientists of the UFO nature before, but something happened to them that shook them. And I don't like using him as an example, but Greer is a good example of this, right? Yeah, no, Greer's a great example of this. Because he threw his fucking career down the toilet because of this. Well, and also uh, Bob Lazar would be a good example. Yeah, Bob Lazar too. He's not benefited, at least as far as I can tell, from his coming forward at and all. Lou Elizondo yeah or all uh, assuming that he is not still on government payroll being a disinformation agent as some people think correct or all of the people that uh, in the 20th century were uh, going around screaming the truth about the shit the CIA was pulling not only in foreign soil mm-hmm. but to our own goddamn citizens in the name of their experimentations and got labeled as mentally unstable and were left to spend the rest of their lives in mental institutions. Yeah, on that on that thought, I mean, look at all the 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 super classified psychic research that the CIA and the FBI FBI did some too, right? I think so. I but the CIA for sure yeah. that they that they did and kept it all kept it all hush hush. And if anybody found out about it, it was like, nah, no, nah, fuck that. And we're not doing that shit. You're crazy. Uh, yeah. The day I found out that it turns out that we don't know the details, but we know that MK Ultra was definitely a thing. Oh yeah, made me yeah. want to seal myself into a wall. We, uh, who was it? We talked about the dude that uh, created MK Ultra in my the Alien World 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 Order episode, I believe, because he was cited in that book. I don't know. I blocked that entire episode. Out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Len Caston, Craston, Psycho, do uh, not Psycho, weirdo. Um, I'm pretty sure he cites the MK Ultra dude yeah. in his book. 
In Chapter 2, The Good Folk, Valet moves beyond offhanded inference and begins to draw direct parallels between the modern UFO phenomenon and earlier tales of the fairy faith in Celtic regions. He begins this process with the strange story of Joe Simonton, a 60-year-old chicken farmer who, late one April night in 1961, was drawn outside by a strange sound to find a saucer-shaped craft hovering over his yard. Three entities, five feet tall and, quote, resembling Italians, emerged and, using hand gestures, indicated that they needed water. That's why they resembled Italians. Oh, God. (laughs) Joe Joe was good enough to comply, and once provided, he watched as the figures stepped back into their craft and began to cook over a flameless grill he could see from the yard outside. Once they were done, one of the entities came back out, handed him three pancakes, and departed. The FDA would go on to test the cakes, finding nothing non-terrestrial in their makeup, and the taste tests showed the cakes to be dry and a little bland, as they were entirely devoid of salt. This bizarre little encounter to modern sensibilities sounds not only absurd, but downright preposterous. After all, what need would an advanced race have to borrow a cup of water from a simple chicken farmer? But when taken in the light of the fairy tradition, a strange sort of sense begins to emerge. Valet relates this story to the numerous myths and legends of the good folk. In one legend, a man named Pat Feeney arose from his bed one night in the mid-1800s to find a small woman at his door asking for oatmeal. He gave her all he had, and when he woke the next day, he discovered his open was full of bursting, a mysterious gift from the fairy visitor. And again, in another legend, a woman is given an inexhaustible supply of wheat cakes in exchange for keeping quiet about damages done to her farm by rambunctious sprites. Interestingly, here it is also noted that the good folk do not like salt, drawing a parallel to the Farmer Joe's bland wheat cakes. In each case, hospitality seems to be the key, in that if one provides a service to the others, they can be expected to receive one in return. This seems to be the case in both UFO and fairy lore. Furthermore, he draws correlations between the myths of fairy rings and modern UFO nests, being the impressions left in the ground after a UFO has landed, and which are reported to occasionally contain large toadstools, much akin to the circles fairies were known to hold their revelries in. Also in line with the traditional lore of the fairy faith is the obsession UFO occupants seem to have with local vegetation and animals, as both bodies of lore are packed with strange stories of mysterious visitors coming down from the sky to take dirt samples or to steal local vegetation and animal life. One such story, which long predates the UFO craze of the 1940s, took place in Leroy, Kansas in the year 1897. The witness? None other than Alexander Hamilton. Yes, that Alexander Hamilton. I lost my shit. (laughs) I lost my shit, you guys. I just started rapping. Uh, (laughs) Woken one night by an odd noise coming from among his cattle, he went to investigate and found a 300-foot-long cigar-shaped airship hovering above the herd. Through its glass hull, he perceived six beings that he described as, quote, quite ugly. (laughs) Hamilton heard one of the cows crying out and went to investigate, only to find that the cow had a red cord looped around its neck, and the other end of which was attached to the craft, where the mysterious visitors were trying to wench the cow up into the sky, only to be thwarted when the poor thing became tangled in some fencing. They cut the fencing to free the cow, but she was immediately ripped skyward. Her hide, legs, and head were found in a field the next day. Regardless of if this was due to fairies or little green men from Mars, this case shows us that the, quote, modern UFO phenomenon, even its most terrifying aspects, isn't very modern at all. And that brings us to our next discussion question. Yeah. 
So let's take a moment here to talk about cattle mutilations. One of, in my opinion, the most perplexing and frightening aspects in the body of UFO lore. Obviously, many explanations have been forwarded by believers and professional skeptics alike, but I want to hear your guys' take. What do you make of this aspect of, of the phenomenon? Is there a purpose to it, or is this just another absurd act meant to beguile and frighten us? And has your understanding of the phenomenon been impacted by the fairy connections drawn by Valet? So for the first part about the cattle mut- mutilations, I have, um, I don't, I don't have a lot of background information on much more in terms of cattle mutilation in ufos other than uh one th- a couple of little things that i'm going to bring up mm-hmm. so the first thing that came to my mind when i uh when i read your question ahead of time was uh skinwalker ranch yeah i mean you, there's plenty of cattle mutilation stories that come from there yeah and that's that i mean and and it, it got me wondering if part of the reason why the um, entities, whatever whatever they might be, are so interested in it in in understanding the biology or the physiology of the cattle specifically is how they seem to react to them and the phenomenon in general, because they do react to the phenomenon. We can see that through Skinwalker Ranch and through the television show. I mean, the cows right. often enough were biosensors. They were used by the researchers to detect when the UFOs are coming because they would start running away. Right. Which bothers me a little bit, but I also hero shields. Right. <laughs> but so it, it, I mean, they got me wondering if that was it. Maybe they don't like, you know, we were just talking about how dogs don't understand us on a fundamental like on a on a on a a consciousness level or however you want to say it but yet we have what we would consider evidence of cats seeing something ghosts or uh other beings and cattle reacting to ufos and other things so a part of me wonders if maybe they're just trying to figure that shit out too they're trying to figure out how the cows can see them coming right like why are why does this work yeah, I mean that that I haven't considered that. The what if what if the intelligence whatever it is is just as perplexed by some of the things it's finding on our world as we are by it. I mean because if you think about it theor- like theoretically if we're different from they are, which we are based on every bit of evidence that we have, you'd have to imagine that so are the animals and the other creatures that inhabit our planet versus whatever whatever dimension or planet that they might inhabit. Right. So they're maybe they're just as interested in the why behind why they react the way they do as we are. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, it's good. Good of an idea as any. I mean, I mean, also, also obviously regarding this topic and anything that pretty much anything we're going to talk about on this podcast. We don't know. You know, we, we, we don't know the truth. So this is any ideas really ultimately as good as any other unless um, you you don't source your work well. All right, uh, Jay, what do you think? So while I was reading through some of these cattle mutilation stories, you know, there was something nagging at me. And I'm like, what the fuck am I trying to remember here? This sounds familiar. Why the fuck am I trying? What am I remembering here? And then I was doing completely separate research into uh, I'm trying to expand my knowledge of uh 
non-Hellenistic deities, so like non-Greco-Roman deities. And so I was refreshing my memory on the other European pantheons. And I was reading through uh, I was reading through a couple of mythological encyclopedia entries on the Morrigan. And then I remembered uh, in the Ulster cycle, uh, which is one of the great uh, myths of Irish culture, uh, the central character of that, whose name I will not attempt to pronounce. Uh, huh. If you look up the Ulster yeah. cycle, you'll see it. And it's a very Irish name and I can't pronounce it at all. Yeah, Those uh, Gaelic names, though. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're butchering every name on this show. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we are very Midwestern. Well, yeah. the, the first time that he encounters the Morrigan, who after uh, the after the incursion of Christianity into the British Isles, the Morrigan was restyled as a more fae-like spirit or as a fairy queen. The first time the main character of the Ulster Cycle encounters the Morrigan, uh, it's in the middle of the night when she's stealing one of his cows. Uh Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's stealing one of his cows, and he attempts to stop her, and in response to it, she curses him. And uh, also in... In that ver- in the version of that myth, she is carrying, she's leading the cow away on her magical chariot while she is accompanied by a literal giant that is there to serve as her bodyguard. And uh, well, you know, leading the cow away from her chariot that just makes me think about again uh, the airship Hamilton saw. It was, it wasn't like it had a tractor beam on the cow. It was a red cord. It's like a leash. Right. And th- that's exactly what I was thinking of. It's just like in light of what I was reading through Jacques Vallée, that sounds a lot more like an interrupted cattle abduction than yeah. anything else. Espe- huh. Especially again, when you, when you consider like the Morrigan was well known as a vicious shapeshifter that more or less viewed humans as playthings that existed to be tormented. Oh, God, she's a reptilian. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish you listeners at home could see the uh, hatred on Jay's face right now. We've said a bunch of, we said her name a bunch of times. She is definitely listening, so she definitely heard that. She was already listening. We have a triple goddess upstairs. Just a a point. Just to build off that, what I find very interesting there, I mean, and I didn't really even think about this till right now, but. What if the explanation of why they mutilate the cattle, why they do this, is as simple as food? And the story from Passport to Magonia I'm thinking of, I can't remember his name, but the native hunter that was discussed around that, uh, an ancient native myth. uh, Yes, the the Algonquin hunter. Yeah, an Algonquin hunter basically was, uh, he ventured into the spirit world and there was a maiden there or something to the kind of that he wanted to win. Um, uh, what I remember is that she was on board a magic basket that descended from the yeah, heaven. Yeah, she was right. one of 12 sisters and he coaxed her off of the basket and married her and they had a child together. Yes, yeah, seemingly unwillingly based on the way that that was worded. Uh, yeah. But then when she wanted to return home, she made another basket. But she made another basket and basically uh he the hunter eventually got an invite to come to yeah. join her in the other world, but what he had to do was bring them the meat of all the animals that he had hunted so they could eat it. Yeah. So maybe there is something, you know, maybe, oh God, what if like all the aliens are fae or whatever they are? They're just adventurous eaters. They're just going planet to planet. They got to try everything. I mean, we're adventurous eaters, we being the human uh, people. But, that, but then you do have to get into the question of, I guess, 
I mean, it could just be a dietary thing, but why is usually specifically, well, they cut out the eyes and the anus. That might just be what they eat. Yeah, I mean, I it, mean, it, a lot of it is internal organs too that seem yeah, to sure. that seem to go missing from the cattle and animals. Those are usually the highest highest protein, most nutrition. Also, something else just occurred to me regarding uh, Morgan and the Fey uh, myths in Celtic lore. Uh, Morgan was the reason that she was a goddess is because she was a tr- she was a member of the tribe of gods the Tutha de Danon who in the ancient celtic lore were described as a um, race of powerful inhuman creatures that came from beneath the sea and drove out what was b- what had been there before them in Ireland. Yeah, the Tua, the Tua de Dana, yeah. de Danon or however you say it, it's a fucking terrible Gaelic word. Uh, he, uh, the word's not terrible, just your pronunciation is. <laughs> yeah, but Jacques Vallée actually uh, shouts out another one of the um, awesome like races of Celtic lore, the Donia Shi. Yeah, the, yeah, the Donia Shi, yeah. Uh, yeah, that never occurred to me before that it's like, according to Celtic myth, it's like, yeah, the, the, the god tribe didn't originate from Ireland by just springing out of it. They they came from beneath the fucking sea. They came from somewhere Which is else. Interesting when you look at the modern UFO phenomenon, a lot of people saying they live beneath the sea around the Catalina Islands. They have an underwater base. Well, you could, I mean, and there are later examples in this book that kind of even go so go, go even further with the, the fey races that were like wispy. Yeah. And they say that they could essentially fit and go anywhere where wind was blowing. And they, when they would talk, they would whisper, which um, is actually a very fey thing. Morning cant is an is a is a fey language, you know, which is it sounds like whispers in the wind. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I think there might be something there. Maybe. All right, so we ready to uh, move to chapter three? No, I want to address the last part of your question just real quick because I really I like this part. Is the okay. uh, understanding of the phenomenon has it been impacted yeah. by my fairy connections drawn by or the fairy connections drawn by Valet? Yes, it absolutely <laughs> has because Faylor, uh, in general, is something I really like. You know, I've always been like super interested in learning like the Celtic folk tales and um the fey lore and now seeing the the direct connections that valet is making from some of these stories that i had read previous to reading this book and the direct connections to similarities in the ufo phenomenon kind of made me sit back and go have i been semi-worshipping aliens this whole time like and that kind of fucks with your head when you think about it i mean sure yeah, that would fuck with anyone's head. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I, I don't know. Like, I was, I was like, okay, so if that's sh- like, if this part is true, <laughs> right? Like, if, if we're assuming that this part is true, then I'm, I have to look at other stories that I really enjoy and look at them in a different light now. So, like, for example, ah, uh, fuck, the name, of course, of the story is drawn a blank on me. Um, but it's about this ruler named Lear, who is a Tuathadadanan, uh, one of the god king, uh, one of the gods of Ireland, or the Celtic region. 
and it's about his interactions with other, you know, the other Tuthadana and his wife and all the drama that sparked up with that. But one of the things that happened in it was that uh, the wife turned Lear's children into swans and it caused all this drama around the world because the swans fucked off into the wind, of course. And started going around the world and people these were talking swans they could still talk so it started like messing with all these people and the stories were elsewhere outside of this folk story and that makes me go so what the fuck is going on with swans now i mean maybe people were turned into swans yeah i know and that's blowing my mind a little (laughs) do you think maybe cattle mutilations are them trying to uh learn as much they as they can about the various animals on our planet because they're turning us into them. That's their, that's the, that's global invasion plan. There's no, I mean, no independence day lasers. They're just going to sweep over the world and turn us all into cows. Precious alien overlords. I would like to be a rhino. I really don't like that. You called them precious. (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to make us all into our fucking government assigned personas. (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> government aside for some i don't want to be a mongoose i, I just want to be a rhino <laughs> i'm sure they'll make you a rhino just because they don't want to hear you crying about it if you're not <laughs> yeah, you can be a naked unicorn it's okay i it's a chubby unicorn thank you unicorns are already naked yeah chubby unicorn okay fine all right, so chapter three. This is why Jacques Filet won't answer our letters. <laughs> chapter three, The Secret Commonwealth, is where Filet continues to build on his thesis by expanding the scope of his analysis beyond the Celtic countries to show the persistent nature of the phenomenon across cultures and regions. Of the various visitations detailed in this chapter, I was particularly struck by the Black Dwarves, a race of four to five foot tall, stocky humanoids often reported to have dark skin and a body coated in black hair. Seen not only in Celtic and Britannic fairy folklore, but also in the French Farfadets and in the icols of the folklore of the Mexico's native Tezital population, all of which described a race of short, brutish, black-haired dwarves with a penchant for mischief, and, in Mexico at least, the ability to fly through the air with wondrous rockets strapped to their back, which is a great image. Even in the far-flung lands of Persia and India, stories dot the historical record of black dwarves who were expert archers and often served as royal bodyguards to mortal rulers until they seemed to vanish from the face of the earth, something which traditional fairy lore claims occurred when man began to spread into the countrysides, prompting the fae to retreat back to wherever it was they came from. It has also been suggested that such stories are proof of a now-dead type of people who may have originated in Celtic regions who just tended to be shorter and darker skinned than their neighbors, but Valet doesn't seem to put much stock in that theory. On the same note, he draws parallels between the Britannic Fions, a race of wide-eyed fae known to be blind during the day, and the moon-eyed people reported by the Cherokee as they migrated into the land we know as Tennessee, who suffered a similar affliction. On the opposite side of the American continent, the Paiute tribes of California tell of an advanced tribe who came in flying silver canoes and who could paralyze men with small handheld tubes, much like what we see in modern UFO encounters. Taking all this together, Valet takes a moment to discuss how folklore forms. 
If we are to assume the black dwarves and moon-eyed fions represent some sort of actual entities, then we can only assume that the various stories of them originated in the initial experiences had between those entities and ancient people, encounters which, through constant retelling, were sanitized and stripped down to simple moral parables, fairy tales. In much the same way, Valet argues that the modern UFO phenomenon is in the process of creating a new type of folklore, one more amenable to our modern technological age. Today, we all wonder at flying machines in the sky. In a thousand years, perhaps our descendants will tell campfire stories about the gray-skinned spacemen whom their ancestors so foolishly believed in. And on that note, we get to our third discussion question here. I want to dwell on this idea of folklore for a second, because that of everything in this book that got my mind going the most. So this book was written in the mid 60s. And since then, we've had roughly 60 years to digest and continue to interpret the UFO phenomenon. Do you see any evidence of the emergence of a body of what we would call UFO folklore? And what impact do you think it may have upon our culture? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, 150 percent. Yes. If you look at all of the even differences uh, between the different alien species that people, you know, claim might be here to people comparing fucking. Uh, what are those uh, fucking things in the sky that I hate that? Weather balloons? Chemtrails. Uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, co- like comparing chemtrails to uh, the reptilians and w- with all that shit. So, yes, absolutely. There is modern UFO folklore. It might not all be nuts and bolts, but when it comes when it when it comes down to it. Yes. One hundred percent. We read an entire book that is essentially folklore. It's called Alien World Order. It was hot garbage. I'm not sure if I call that folklore or just lying. <laughs> well, hey, Robert Morning Sky thinks it's true. I, I'm not convinced he thinks anything's true. I, I think Robert Morning Sky uh, is likely just a fraud. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100 percent. Yeah, but no, I, I absolutely think that there is there is a ton of uh, of evidence of this folklore being created because it's happening all around us. People, I mean. Look at Twitter, man. Like, there's new shit. It's seemingly every single day about this, that, or the other thing that's just adding to the stockpile of quote unquote evidence. The fact that we, that one of the the main criticisms that can be lobbied against you if you make an alien movie is your aliens were too generic. We now have an idea of a generic alien within our pop culture. Well, and a lot of people blame the cover of Whitley Stryber's communion on that. That was where the kind of image of the big headed gray skinned alien entered a lot of people's public consciousness. Yep. Yeah. Or entered the public consciousness. Yeah. I mean, and that goes like with so much media when media gets their hands on, on this kind of stuff, they're going to try and streamline it almost mm-hmm. because that makes it easier for them to continue to make more and more well, and more and same more. Same thing with the idea of like the anal probes. Right. Right. Well, and that's something that we do see is that also elements of people's experiences just get stripped out if it doesn't align with the narrative of what UFOs do and what they are. Right. But yeah, there's 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 def- there's definitely been a creation of UFO folklore 
Uh, and I think it's just going to get more rich and more controversial. And uh, uh, probably it is just going to become in a few centuries, it's just going to become another thing like the Fae or the Easter Bunny or what the fuck ever, where it's going to be just treated as another branch of this is a thing that humans believe in. Another uh, interesting thought. Uh, look at anyway, look at uh, some of the redditors that will comment on like the UFO subreddit and stuff. And they, if somebody like posts a theory on there, a lot of people are like, "No, nah, no, nah, that can't be because this, that, and the other thing." It's like, you know, like you don't, we don't know. know. We don't know, but they're citing it as if it is, you know, written fact. Well, you know. And I, I, so I did find something on the topic of folklore and kind of, I mean, on a positive side of folklore, I guess I'd say, I don't even know if this is positive, but I think it's, it's, it's more interesting to me than the people who obviously put their stake in the ground and say, this is what I believe and everyone else is stupid. Um, I, I have, I found an interesting story. So there's this, uh, concept in Appalachian folklore called splitting the wind and this is something that farmers would do around the 1800s when they were in the Appalachian Ranges is if a storm was coming, they'd take a knife to the corner of their property in the direction, you know, the corner closest to where the storm is going to hit and they sink the knife in the ground. And the idea is, is that as the storm comes, it will get split along the knife blade and avoid the farm. So as a way to kind of protect your farm from a storm. Fucking wild. I found a story, though, uh, from 1974. Uh, of a man in Appalachia who was interviewed by a local paper, and he was doing the split the wind uh, ritual, but it, like his grandfather had taught him, but it was not to avoid a storm. It was to keep the damn UFOs off his property. And so I think we, we, we will see UFO. I mean, it's already happening, but UFOs will continue to kind of bleed into our cultural makeup, into our cultural DNA, our shared body of information. I mean... The just the image of the flying saucer is so iconic now. Um, and it, you walk into a hot topic, you'll you'll see it four or five times just walking through there. I mean, the fact that it made it to hot topic is just showing how mainstream it is now. Yeah. But I mean, the hot topic is basically a litmus test of what preteens like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and supernatural. And to, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I still shop at hot topic. Of course, you. of course, I, I still fucking shop at hot topic. It's cheap and it's everywhere and it's fine and everyone needs to leave us alone. <laughs> but. And also that that you were talking about like that bleed over and that tendency to sort of um, almost Russian nesting doll our various folklore into composites and kind of try and try and build our our old traditions, our old cultural traditions into new things that have we be, that we believe that there's precedent for that all over. Um, while uh, uh Nick and Rory witnessed this over the past few days. I uh, started obsessively falling down rabbit holes trying to figure out what the Catholic Church's modern take on the Fae actually is. Uh, because the Catholic Church used to, especially in Ireland, believe very deeply and vocally in the Fae. It's just like, yeah, they're fucking everywhere. You gotta have crosses up to keep them off your goddamn wheat. It was... Uh, and I... So I was just like, what the fuck are the Fae now? And basically, the closest thing that I could get to an answer from Catholic lay people is, listen, listen, any story that you read that you believe about the Fae 
if it was a good thing that they were doing, that was an angel appearing to us in a pagan disguise because we couldn't yet understand the true teachings of Christ. If it was a bad thing, it was a demon also appearing to us in a pagan sky, in a pagan disguise. Fairy godmothers, like in Cinderella, that's a guardian angel. It's all, it's it's angels or it's demons. There's no fucking third thing. <laughs> Which is interesting because it reminds me of the things that we've recently heard uh, Lou Elizondo say about the pushback he got within the Department of Defense, where some of the Department of Defense officials looked at him and said, you shouldn't look at UFOs. They're demons. <laughs> and so we've just continued to Russian nesting doll this No, thing. exactly. Well, and then there's uh, there's another side of it, too, if you want to go um, <clears throat> John Keel about it. Uh, well, where you, the Catholic Church isn't wrong. They're all the same thing. They're all nothing. Yeah. Well, it's it's do you believe in it? Right. Then the phenomena will make sure it's true for you. But here's a counter to that. And we were just talking about this the other day is what there are scenarios that it shows that the specific entity and the belief behind it matters for uh, what was the one you were telling me about that we were talking about? Uh, the one within the book or the TV show we were watching? Was it in the book? I think it was in the book. Yeah, the one in the book. Uh, the woman being tormented by the incubus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's, a, there's, uh, there's a story in Passport to Magonia, fascinating story about uh, a woman who, in, who was tormented for years by an invisible force that was attempting to seduce her at times quite forcibly telling her it wasn't going to take no for an answer, uh, that the church was like, that's clearly an incubus. And, you know, Catholic sensibilities hammered into my head from a young age, despite my father's best efforts. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there going like, yeah, that's an incubus. And then Jacques Vallée, who I can only assume is a fucking Protestant, was like, why didn't it cow before the cower before the name of God? And I was like, shit! <laughs> What the fuck did him being or not being a Protestant have to do with that? I'm making fun of the fact that he pointed out something that I that I should have that I should have realized. Couldn't see through your uh, your Catholic lens. The f- yeah, the fact <laughs> that it didn't occur to me until he said it. Of it's like why didn't it why didn't it flee before the sign of the cross? Why didn't it cower before the names of Jesus and Mary? And I'm just sitting there. It's like that's actually a really good point. And I don't have an explanation for you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and and that's, I mean, you know, you can poke a hole in any theory. I I don't have an answer for that. I wasn't I wasn't necessarily saying like saying that to poke a hole is just adding to the absurd nature of it all and how hard it is to actually grasp your your mind around it because sometimes it sometimes this shit matters and then sometimes this shit doesn't seem to matter at all and that makes me think like sometimes we hit the nail on the head and we're like yeah. We got it right. We know what this is. And then other times we're fucking uh, just wrong. It's it's a very least. That story was just fascinating to me because it was one of those times where it was a reminder to me that there there was a time where even the Christian powers that be of the world were forced to acknowledge that there were things outside of their scope of knowledge like that was that case of the woman being tormented by the invisible force that was labeled, for lack of a better term, an incubus. I, the church was like, we don't know what to do here. They verified that it was some sort of haunting. They verified it was it was some sort of entity that was tormenting the family because there were dozens of witnesses, including two, including two knights of the cross. Well, and, and everyone in that church. Yeah. And, so at one point she was she basically went to uh, 
priest and prayed for deliverance. And basically, she promised God she would wear nothing but monk's robes for a year if he would spare her from this thing. And she walked into a church in the monk's robe and then a wind blew up and tore the monk's robe off of her, leaving her naked in front of the whole church. Yep. And it was one of the where it's like there were there none of their exorcisms, none of the typical things that they do in the face of a demon did jack shit. And this was not a case where you could accuse the person of having a lack of faith. She was considered one of the most pious women in the entire parish. And it it just made me think of the fact that this this whole thing about like fairy godmothers were guardian angels. Those were angels and demons appearing to us in pagan disguises. There was a time where the church would have called that bullshit because there's like we know we know for a fact that there are entities in this world that are not part of that dichotomy or that spectrum. And it just that was kind of the thing that was really fucking with me the most is the the fact that i i'm so frustrated with everyone's des- with the mainstream desire to make things so simple and so streamlined that we deny facts and figures that are sitting right in front of our face because they don't sit in this neat little they don't fit into this neat little dichotomy and it's like you at a certain point you claiming that those were angels and demons in a pagan disguise makes these stories make less sense because angels and demons don't behave like this well and so you know it's actually interesting that makes me think about demon of brownsville road our second episode uh yeah with uh, connie valente connie valente well basically we had in that book a Catholic priest full on endorsing reincarnation behind closed doors. Yeah. And then it also makes me think about uh, secret teachers of the Western world from episode five. Uh, And the reason I'm thinking about that is Lachman posited that one of the big differences between your, your logical brain and your magical brain would be the difference between either or and, and yet, and yes, and or both. And in that, I, I think probably what we could see, we could conceptualize what you just said there, that shift as more evidence of the shift from that right brain, both and to that uh, either or mentality in that at one point we could say, yes, God is the only God and there are demons and there's this other stuff. Don't worry about it. But now it's no, it's one or the other. You can't hold two diametrically opposing viewpoints. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree, and I, that all of this got me thinking of something that I I was because uh, I was skimming back through the book because I wanted to like highlight certain yeah. sections, whatever. And I read the read this part from uh, when they were talking about what Bar- I think their names Barney and Betty Hill. Yeah, um, Great. My, one of my favorite cases. Yeah, and this the there's a quote in in here. I'm going to pull a leaf out of your book, and I'm gonna, <gasps> I'm going to read a quote here. And so, and and then I'll explain why afterwards. But the quote is, I did not hear an actual voice, but in my mind, I knew what he was saying. It wasn't as if he were talking to me with my eyes open and he was sitting across the room from me. It was more as if the words were there, a part of me, and he was outside the actual creation of the words themselves. And the reason why I, that quote stuck out to me so much is, for a couple of reasons. One, you had asked me weeks ago what it felt like to be talked to by like another entity. There you go. What I was trying to, what I was trying to explain to you then I couldn't put formulate into the correct words. And that is, that's a really good way to put it. And, but that made me think of, made me think in relation to this specific question. Um, 
with the folklore is one of the things look at religious history and things like that. Look at some of our secret teachers. Look, let's look at Jesus. He claimed to speak directly to God and that God spoke directly to him. We don't know how he felt about that, but I can say that it probably was something similar to that, to that same sensation, that same feeling that like guided understanding of, of, of what this entity is saying to you. It's not telepathy so much as like intuition, right? It's sudden knowing. Right. Exactly. And that like struck me in a way that it's like eventually somebody like Jacques Vallée has, they're going to put this in a book and people are going to see this and they're going to think this is no different than a prophet in a way. Yeah. You know, and that, that makes a weird kind of sense. Um, and actually speaking about the secret teachers and Lachman's book more, you know what I was thinking about earlier, Jay, with your comment about the Russian nesting doll nature of folklore, uh, it would seem to me then the goal would be to open up that Russian nesting doll to try to find out what's at the at its core, because that will be the truth. And what, what's funny about that is if that's the goal of, say, ufology or even let's just say uh, psychical studies or paranormal studies. Uh, how is that really any different from the early philosophers goal of returning to the perennial philosophy? I don't no. think it is. Yeah, it, it's still we're still as a species seem to be concerned with this search for this fundamental truth at the root of everything. Well, I think that comes down to being like when the vast majority of us are sitting in that lower echelon of consciousness where we're not thinking outside of me. Yeah. You know, so they can't we they whatever we they they can't think outside of that 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 realm of that there's something more than what's right in front of them it also it also makes me think about like and i've i've brought this this is one of my things that i bring up all the time because we all have patterns on this show of the idea of of you know like i've said before the first culture ancestral eve the the one singular group of people that we're all descended from and the fact that there's a growing number of people that think that a lot of the questions about some of the quote-unquote broken or dysfunctional parts of our society might be answered if we better understood the original culture that we're all descended from that is lost to the sands of time in ancient Ethiopia and that the, the perennial philosophy finding the smallest doll in the in the Russian nesting doll of folklore is that the root too of its of its like what are we so painfully homesick for when we were driven out of Ethiopia you know that that and you know because this has been a pattern of us sparking different thoughts with each other but that made me think of something that I talked about in a previous episode that whole god complex thing yeah and that kind of is the same thing, right? Why are we always searching for more? Like, what is it fundamentally in our DNA? It seems like that's always got us searching for more and yet not accepting the answers that we're given. Well, especially if the, uh, if it's correct that even like the Neanderthal had a moon based religion, the, it, it's, it's fundamental. It is right. something in us that seeks that other world. Yeah. I mean, even, even. I think Sigmund Freud was an unhinged idiot, but he had some. Sex. Yeah, he had some very interesting ideas that I think could, within the larger pattern, be an interesting contrast because there, Freud's uh, 
pessimistic, uh, sex-obsessed, toxic masculinity view of where religion came from is that religion was the memory of a great crime that our original culture committed, that we are still traumatized by the fact that we did it. Uh, He believed specifically that religion is the pathological, unresolved trauma of a moment when a group of brothers were driven to kill and cannibalize their father. And that is where the uh, constant urge towards the seeking of a per- of a paternal father figure in the sky comes from. His his view makes more sense if you apply it exclusively to male dominated Christianity, because in reality, most ancient religions uh, favored a mother creator over a father creator. But the idea of being forced to kill your own father and then cannibalize his body in order to survive there, there does seem to be a weird pathology that lines up with Christianity there. Yeah. Interesting. But so I'm glad that you brought up sex because that actually brings us to our next section. <laughs> so in chapter four to Magonia and back, Valet turns the conversation towards another often terrifying aspect of the phenomenon, abductions. He connects modern UFO incidents, such as Betty and Barney Hill's infamous abduction, to mythological tales of demons, fae, and sprites known to whisk mortal men away for food, carnal passions, or to participate in the birthing process. As with Joe Simmerton's encounter with pancake-making space visitors, this chapter is chock full of parallel tales in which individuals are taken or spirited away by the fairy folk and put to work providing a task, which often has to do with either sex or childbirthing. For example, a common tale in fairy folklore that comes in several variations is the story of a simple midwife who, answering the pleas of a stranger at their door, journeys into Elfland to help an elven maiden give birth. Such individuals usually reap some kind of reward, usually in gold or food. Similarly, in true UFO fashion, such experiences often leave the victims displaced in time, with either little time having passed during their sojourn in Elfland or more troubling, far too much time. When not grabbing humans to aid in childbirth, many of these encounters are of a decidedly carnal nature, involving seduction by the otherworldly visitors, strongly mirroring modern UFO theories regarding hybrid programs and interspecies liaisons. One such example from UFO lore being the now infamous story of Antonio Villas Boas, a Brazilian farmer who claims to have been abducted in 1957 and subjected to a round of passionate lovemaking with a beautiful cat-eyed woman, seemingly for the express purpose of procreation. This odd sexual relationship with the others may even be present in the Bible, where it is written that many angels descended from heaven and had sex with human women and bore monstrous half-breed children. And Jesus. Right. Valet then draws parallels between the sanitization of fairy tales to make them digestible for children, often by stripping out the sex, violence, and stranger behaviors that are incongruent with the moral narrative, and what is happening to the modern UFO phenomenon, where the absurd is being systematically stripped out or more often ignored from the body of UFO lore. As Valet argues, it is only by acknowledging those absurd and R-rated aspects of the phenomenon that we may come closer to understanding the purpose of these bizarre visitations and, just maybe, get closer to the true motivations for the phenomenon. Motivations which clearly have a genetic component. 
So this is our next discussion question. We're going to talk about sex. Let's try to be adults here. One popular <laughs> explanation for the sexual component of the UFO phenomenon is that the others are in some sort of genetic peril and need to interbreed with humanity for the sake of their species survival. However, as Valet notes, there are several holes in this theory, the biggest being why an advanced scientific race would need to resort to physical sexual contact when human DNA could just as easily be harvested from a single hair or skin cell. What other explanations can you think of as to why such encounters occur? Taken in context with a fairy faith and other folklore, what purpose do you think such visitations may have? So... Fun fact, remember me talking about the Morrigan and uh, the hero of the Ulster cycle who stopped her from taking his cow and she got really mad at him for that? I do. Um, so, my and, and this is my favorite uh, branch of the Morrigan myths. Uh, she made it her business to keep tormenting that guy and he made it his business to keep pissing her off. Uh, you know what the next thing he did that made her really, really mad? She wanted to fuck him and he was like, no thanks. <laughs> Uh, so there's that. Um, also, uh, going back to the earlier thing that I was, that we were discussing about the incubus that the church was like, I mean, it acts like a demon, but none of our demon hurting tools are doing anything to it. Uh, Rory and I have talked a couple of times at length about our growing suspicion that that wasn't a demon at all. That was an angel that had dipped out of the pearly gates and was trying to bang a human lady. And she was like, I'm married and you're invisible and I don't like this. And, uh, shit. What was my point? God. I'm really tired of angels constantly fucking humans because that's the actual reason we had to have the flood, guys. It wasn't because humanity had become filled with sin. It was because too many angels had sex with mortal women and kept producing monstrous giants and they were running amok on the earth, destroying everything in their path. And God panicked and just tried to drown all of them. That's I'm, the actual reason the flood was a thing. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. Is that in the Bible? Because I don't Enoch. remember. Oh, the book of Enoch. According to the book of Enoch, that was the actual reason behind the flood was because if I am remembering correctly, that was the actual reason behind the flood was it wasn't it wasn't because of humanity. It was because God could not figure out. He was he was just like he was like, drown it, just drown so, the whole thing because you guys wouldn't use a goddamn condom. And every time you went down there, you were just hitting it bare. Are you are you telling me that we weren't full of sin? We were just full of angel cum? Yeah. Yes, it wasn't even our fault. It was, again, the angels kept hitting it bareback. Why would God make these monkeys so irresistibly sexy? I I think God was distracted by making guinea pigs as cute as possible, and it wasn't paying attention, and then looked over and was like, that is a lot of giants. And Michael was like, yeah, I told them to take condoms, and they're not listening to me. Oh, Jesus. I... <clears throat> I just had my mind blown. Yeah, no, I have never heard that before. That's interesting. Uh, I I might be misremembering that, and it might have just... That is my recollection from the books of Enoch that were removed from most Bibles, is that that is, that is what was at least a large... It was a larger part of the flood narrative than most people will... Than most people are aware of. Fascinating. Um. So... Why do you think it happens, though? Is it just is it just that they're horny? I 
I think it's just that they're horny. I also You're right, by the way. I am okay, good. Um I also okay, let me let me try and string some of my research into this. I was I was reading something about I was trying to read up on the Catholic Church's stance on aliens as well, and I found a very interesting statement. Uh, from the former head of the Vatican Observatory, who basically, he, he said, I don't think angels would need to embrace Christ in order to be saved. He says, I think that the creation of Christ was wholly unique because I believe that the hu- that the situation humanity finds itself in is in all of God's infinite creation in the universe. This, this, and this is the, this man was the head of the Vatican Observatory. He was the personal astronomer to the Pope. This is not just a random priest. This is a man of exceptional learning and faith. He believes that in his interpretation, the situation humanity finds itself in is wholly unique. And so I'm wondering if maybe that's a lens we can look at this through is it's not just that they're horny maybe they're just horny for us we are wholly unique if you look at the at the sophian gnostics and their belief the the gnostics in general and their belief that humanity was an emanation of the demiurge that was then elevated by sophia granted that strange spark of the divine and remember guys What's the main difference between angels and humans? It's not superpowers. It's the fact that angels don't have souls. Ditto with the Fae. The Fae don't have souls. Maybe we're just the most bangable things in the entire universe just because there's nothing like us. You know, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I've heard certain elements of the UFO crowd and also various forms of spirituality talk about maybe these entities come from some sort of higher etheric plane where maybe there isn't such thing as a physical reality. It's it's an energy-based existence. What if the reason this is happening is because when they come down here, it is a pleasurable thing they can do while they're physical? And so it's kind of like you it's like Westworld. We are their tourist location. They come here, they're physical, they can experience physical pleasure this is something that you can do to get that. And I would believe that because within Hindu within Hindu and Buddhist mythology, that's what keeps us anchored to the cycle of samsara is the fact that we get caught up in these base physical pleasures that are fleeting but so intense that we trick ourselves into believing, no, this is better than nirvana. Well, I certainly like these explanations more than what I thought. What do you think? I was thinking in the like, maybe they're trying to test out whether or not we're compatible. Yeah, it's like it's like planetary speed dating. They're just well, checking us out. I mean, you know, because we don't know. What if some of these races entities are are limited you know they like uh like jay said they don't maybe they didn't or jay or you said uh they they don't have a way of reproducing like this so they're trying to figure out a way to be able to expand their species and see if we're compatible to do that yeah maybe they, maybe it's something even where it's like they can breed with their own but maybe child the child gestational period takes 
10,000 years for right. them. And so if they want to grow their species quick, they need some donors. They need they need some wombs that they can grow these babies in quicker. I mean, I don't want to say that Len, Ka- Len Ka- Krasner was onto something, but maybe the idea that the, the of the hybrid was it was because they it was a need more than a want. I'll say this. Don't give him credit for the hybrids that existed way before him. I, I know, but... Also, something just occurred to me. You asked within that discussion question, it's like, why are they doing this instead of just harvesting it from skin cells and hair? Making a healthy, quote-unquote, test tube baby with our technology is very difficult. And even if they do, like... We still we can't keep them in the test tube the whole time. They have to eventually be implanted into a viable womb and delivered. And even then, there are, if I am recalling correctly, and this might be out of date science, there are issues with a lot of just physical and health fragility that come from that. Maybe they tried to take our genetic material and mix it in chest tubes and they're like this just isn't working like they don't they don't grow right they get sick really easily they pass away very young maybe and you know our dna might be like some top shelf shit because we are hyper adaptive like we are so good like you know there's there's all that that shit about like human like earth is space australia and humans are orcs and it's like maybe they're like these things are super valuable but just the way that they work they have to their their offspring has to gestate in a womb or else they grow up they grow up sick and they grow up fragile well we're assuming that you know that they just because they can maybe bounce dimensions or that they can fly here from another planet we're assuming that they also have the science uh to be able to harvest our dna and create something that way we don't we don't know that that's that that's a possibility and assuming that it goes because we know science and math we assume is true no matter what right yeah yeah so by that logic, we know how fucking hard it is to do this kind of shit. I can't imagine that even how, no matter how advanced, quote unquote, they might be, that it's any easier for them. And especially if they get a moment of pleasure out of it, why the fuck wouldn't they just do that? Yeah. You know, it reminds me of a short story by Harry Turtledove called The Road Not Taken. So basically, that short story is about a first uh, first contact or rather an alien invasion uh, this aggressive alien species comes here to invade, but when the doors of their miraculous ships open, they walk out with muskets. And the reason is, is on most planets in that story, uh, pe- they develop warp drive around the industrial age, and then most societies cease developing anything but it. And so when they come to Earth and we have machine guns, they're wiped out, and then we get their interstellar ships, and then the en- imp- implication at the end is we're going to go invade the galaxy who's completely defenseless to us. <laughs> uh, um, but what if it, it could easily be that if they, let's say they are a nuts and bolts alien race, which I, I don't don't think it's very likely personally but besides that if they are nuts and bolts alien race um there there's no saying what technology the the lifespan of their species has prompted them to develop we should not assume that they're limitless right and i i think that there's just there's too big of a temptation to uh to fill any gap in the ufo experience that you can't make sense of with its technology they can do anything 
Yeah, and I think I I think that there's too much in the UFO community in general of that just assuming that they are that much better than we are yeah. at everything. Well, and I'll say it's not even just the nuts and bolts side. I mean, you go on the spiritual woo side, they they're pretty much regarded as gods. And, oh, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they'll cure my corn and they'll give me money and fix the planet and we won't have to do anything to uh, to, to make it happen. It's like, nah, bitch, you got to work for it. Well, and that's the thing is, I mean, ultimately, like I said, entertain everything, believe nothing because we don't have the truth. And uh, we'll get to that later. Let's get into the fifth chapter. Yeah. Okie so, the fifth and final chapter of Passport to Begonia, titled Nurslings of Immortality, Valet attempts to construct a plausible hypothesis of what these visitors are up to. Well, he does not arrive at any set conclusion and, in fact, indicates that any conclusion made at this point would be an error. He does provide a number of incidents which hint at that the phenomenon may somehow be involved in the course of human destiny and that perhaps the answer lies in our consciousness. There is perhaps no greater example of this than the airships sighted across the United States in the mid to late 1800s, often described as vessels akin to wooden sailing ships or more often bizarre cigar shaped craft covered in redundant wings and propellers, which to the modern aeronautical eye could not possibly fly. Such craft were often accompanied by normal looking humans, many of which only responded to questions with answers as enigmatic as their vehicle. In some cases, the craft was even dragging a metal anchor along the ground beneath it, once accidentally hooking the clothing of a farmer and dragging him several yards before he was freed. Which, personally, I find a little funny to picture. Oh, I loved, I loved it. <laughs> uh, in another memorable case, a witness spoke with the craft's occupants and asked, where are you from? To which the ship's captain could only smirk and reply, from anywhere, but by this time tomorrow, we'll be in Greece. It's a video game mod. <laughs> These craft were not hallucinatory, leaving physical traces where they landed and often being seen by multiple witnesses, sometimes miles apart, much like many contemporary UFO sightings. So where did they come from and where did they go? As Valet suggests, they never left. Rather, he argues that the phenomenon may have a chameleon-like nature, changing its appearance to suit the cultural expectations of the time. Before airplanes, such airships with their steampunk aesthetic would seem all too plausible as high technology. But in a more modern context, they would seem clunky and more importantly, impossible. So the phenomenon evolves, becomes futuristic in design. This is perhaps best shown in the protean nature of the modern UFO phenomenon and how the behavior of the others varies depending on the culture receiving the visitation. In America, they are mysterious science fiction monsters. In South America, sanguinary and violent. And in France, they are akin to peace-loving tourists. But why would the phenomenon do this? As Valet suggests, it may have something to do with shaping our culture and, yes, our reality. By presenting witnesses with impossibilities, they create a vacuum between what we know and what we see, and when the human mind encounters such a vacuum, it tends to fill it any way it can. Such an act would shape our human imagination and, in turn, our folklore and our beliefs. As Valet writes, quote, It is possible to make large sections of any population believe in the existence of supernatural races, in the possibility of flying machines, in the plurality of inhabited worlds, by exposing them to a few carefully engineered scenes, the details of which are adapted to the cultural and superstitions of a particular time and place. In the final section of this chapter, Conjectures, Valet does his best to bring all these bizarre stories together to suggest some guideposts we can use when examining the phenomenon. First, he lays out the bare bones of what we know. One, 
Since 1946, there has been a rash of sighting of flying machines, often leaving physical traces of its presence and having real impact on its surroundings. These have created no ending of theories and colorful rumors. Two, the saucer myth coincides to a remarkable degree with the fairy lore of Celtic countries. Three, the reported entities vary greatly. Some are giants, some normal humans, some winged, others monsters. Most are dwarves falling into two categories, either the short hairy beings akin to gnomes or beings who resemble the sylphs myth of the Middle Ages. Four, the craft's occupants are absurd and their crafts ludicrous. Their statements have been systematically misleading. This has the effect of keeping professional scientists away from the topic and gives the saucer phenomenon a mythic or religious overtone. And five, the mechanism of these apparitions is standard across time. That means the flying, the lights, the abductions, etc. He then takes these fundamental aspects and does his best to construct three basic propositions, which act as sort of intellectual guideposts to attempting to understand the phenomenon. One, the actions of non-human space visitors or ultra-terrestrials or a superior race coexisting with us on the planet would not necessarily appear purposeful to the human eye. Organized action of a superior race would always appear absurd to the inferior one. Two, as we do not truly understand time, any theory of how the universe works, which does not include our own ignorance in this respect, is bound to remain just an academic exercise. Three, the phenomenon involves elements of myth which could be used to serve political or sociological purposes, as evidenced by the evolving forms of the phenomenon in relation to the growth in human technology. However, the truth is we may never know the reality of the phenomenon simply because we do not understand what reality really is in the first place. It is by examining the phenomenon in its totality, with eyes unclouded by judgment and propriety, that we may learn more of it, and, in turn, ourselves. I'll leave us on a final quote from Valet, which, to me, sums up the core message that I was left with at the end of the book. Quote, The problem of the phenomenon cannot be solved today. If we absolutely must have something to believe, then we should join one of the numerous groups of people who have all the answers. Read Menzel's books or the Condon Report, that fine piece of scientific recklessness. Or subscribe to the magazines that prove that flying saucers are real and from outer space. I have not written this book for such people, but for the few who have gone through all this and have graduated to a higher, clearer level of perception of the total meaning of that tenuous dream that underlies the many nightmares of human history. For those who have recognized, within themselves and in others, the delicate levers of imagination and will not be afraid to experiment with them. Um, and then we get to our final question, which is pretty simple. Uh, so this book was written in 1968, and its impact on the field of ufology, much like its author, is undeniable. Much to the chagrin of materialist nuts and bolts researchers, a vibrant spiritual community has sprung around UFOs who are more open to the concepts of interdimensionality, folkloric connections, and other aspects which not only challenge, but mangle our preconceived view of the universe. But I am curious to hear how it impacted the two of you, being first-time readers of the classic work. Has this book impacted your own understanding of the UFO phenomenon, and if so, how? Ultimately, the answer is yes. For me, at least, because I had never considered the similarities between folklore and and UFOs. You know, I while I didn't necessarily think they were different per se, I didn't think that they could potentially be the same thing or that it was um, humans of the past writing down their understanding 
of what they were seeing. And so, and that we just took that as fun stories instead of that it could be something more than that. So if anything, it, it opened my eyes to the possibility of so much more in terms of what all of this is. So like, I'm super into, like, I'm a very spiritual person, you know? And so thinking about things that I've, I, I've, you know, tried to interact with things that I've done in my life and thinking that this could be contacting not just other entities that I believed lived here, that I believed live here among us, but could also be interactions with these same kind of things that are happening all around us. It, it almost opens my mind to the possibility of so much more that, that I could do, that we could do, you know? And even so like that, it got me thinking like, you know how we did CE5 in order to try and see UFOs, right? Yeah. Which ultimately is a magic ritual. Let's, let's be clear. CE5 is magic. Ab- absolutely. Now think if we did that exact same thing, but instead of with the idea of trying to interact with something in the sky, but rather trying to get something like a fae to interact with us on the ground. Yeah. I mean, it's, that would that would be fun as fuck, you know? Like that would be super cool to try. I'm not saying that it would be that anything would happen, but the idea is now implanted in my brain. Oh, I know what one of my weekends is going to be spent doing in the future. <laughs> but ultimately, I I think this I think this book locked in a lot of my personal feelings that I was starting to develop as we were reading these books and I was, I've been exploring my own personal spirituality and that in a way it's everything that we, that we're doing that, that has happened in the past and that's happening around us in one form or another is connected to this idea of a universal unconscious. Like I'm convinced that that is something that exists at this point. Sure. And I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a full understanding of it, but I know that there, there's got to be a way to tap into it and connect with these other things. And by God, I'm going to try. I mean, and I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Like we were saying, it's part of human nature to try to to want to reach out to that greater world. And anyone who shames that, uh, you know, they're not playing with the levers of imagination, as Valet would say. Yeah. And honestly, like. It. It satisfies like a part in me that used to be committed to preaching and, you know, doing like evangelizing and things like that. Right. Because it, but it lets me, instead of being more like outspoken to you and preaching at you and getting you to come to my Bible studies. Yeah. Instead, I get to do something for myself and those that have the same mindset already, you know, and I don't, it's kind of calming in a way. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Jay? I am not calmed. I <laughs> I feel like that it's always sunny in Philadelphia meme where it's just it's just all the shit taped to the wall and the red string is going everywhere and I look like I haven't slept in days. Uh that's what I feel like all the time right now. And I think that's why I was so angry at the top of this episode. Uh and that's completely so fair. What this means, though, guys, is that you guys need we need to give it 100 episodes and then you'll be able to write a case study about this podcast of watching Jay's declining mental state. <laughs> <laughs> 
now I'm going to be the government dissenter sent to a mental institution because I'm screaming the truth. (laughs) And by the truth, I mean my deeply biased and pessimistic opinions. There is a 0% chance I'm letting you go to a government institution. That's a good point. Put me in a private hospital that looks like a golf resort. (laughs) It will be a golf resort because that way I'll show up more. God damn it. I'll just take you out behind the shed and I'll yell at you. Oh, okay. Cool. I mean, technically that's an option. I'm just opposed to that one. What if I immediately rise from the dead? Like, what if I just bounce right back from like a shotgun shell to the head? I Then we have bigger fucking problems. I'm going to start screaming at the top of my lungs and keep shooting. I mean, (laughs) mean, frankly. That's kind of a fair reaction to your loved one that you thought you were going to, you know, go put down and then they rise up like a fucking zombie. Well, especially with what we learned in Jacques Vallée's book that according to uh, the Catholic mystic tradition, it's like demons have no physical bodies. They borrow the corpses of recently deceased humans, which what? (laughs) Sorry, so we interrupted you. Uh, So... This has this has expanded my impact, my understanding of the UFO phenomenon of I can no longer treat these things as wholly, wholly separate, which kind of makes me mad because I don't (laughs) I don't I don't care for UFOs (laughs) and I don't want fairies to be dumb UFOs. John Keel's corpse is smiling ear to ear right now. (laughs) I don't care for you. You know, you never brought up the fact that Mothman was brought up in this book. Yeah, I didn't I didn't feel the need. There's just so much in this book, and we keep cutting off Jay. Sorry, that uh, that just made me, you said John Keel. It's okay, nothing I say is ever important. That's not true. What you say is very important, and I love you a lot. I agree with what you said, Jay. I'm about to take you from endangered to extinct, you fucking bear squatch. <laughs> Stop fucking testing me. I'm so cranky right now. Bear squatch. That's a new one. All I've right. called you that before. Not on the podcast. On I. That's a good point. Oh, no. I acknowledged we exist outside of recording sessions. <laughs> I don't. Whenever. I go into a corner and just potato about. Anyway, so... I feel like my mind is currently still in a state of expansion of it's right now I'm making furious red string connections to various things that I have known for a long time of like, you know, uh, the aliens seem to really want to fuck humans. Yeah, that does seem a lot like what demons and angels and fae have been doing to us since since forever. Apparently also a lot of there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, my house was being haunted by a ghost and it it fucked me. It's like, is that necrophilia? I don't know. But moving on. And (laughs) I and again, just just a lot of the a lot of the things of the UFO lore that do really sound like encounters with the ancient gods, and it's just it's making my head hurt so much because my brain, my stupid right, my stupid left brain, my stupid post Aristotle left brain is just going like, no, it's not aliens. It's just. God and folklore and why would it be aliens and I'm like maybe it's not aliens and maybe it's not folklore maybe it's all the phenomenon that that Papa Keel warned us about so vehemently <laughs> um, and you know maybe I don't have to understand it maybe I'm allowed to just take in information and maybe I'm allowed to just let it spiritually enrich me instead of trying to like 
use a fucking label maker on every goddamn thing that floats in front of my path. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I need to just like chill. Maybe. I mean, if I think if you follow uh, what Gary Lockman would have suggested with uh, Secret Teachers, it's exactly what you should do. Is that we need to embrace the menta- the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in our head and let them just continue to be there and not have to pigeonhole them into one category or another yeah and it's like it's it's the morgan is not an alien there there are there are stories about her that sounds like she's behaving like an alien but like john keel said the phenomenon dons many faces and you can still call those things different things because they're behaving in a being abides by the laws of the form which it inhabits and that's fine and there's no there's no saying that the Morgan is we're not you know it's like there's no guarantee that the Morgan is an alien for what we know the Morgan is a fey folk that lived or lives among us yeah and and maybe the maybe the aliens if there are aliens maybe they weren't our gods maybe they're imitating our gods because they're like this is a form we can come to them in which they will which they will understand a little bit better or maybe it's all what we just said at the same time. Probably. Well, if you fu- there are some I've heard it I've heard some people make the argument that it's like every decision you make you split into a parallel universe. Yeah. And like we're and that what if you say, "Well, I believe in aliens." And the more you say that, the more you'll drift to the universe where the phenomenon is aliens. And if you say, "I believe it's fairies," the more you'll drift to the universe where it's fairies. But all are true. All are equally true. It just it's it's what where your frame of references. The Morrigan herself comes in triplicate and those forms are distinct and yet the same. Yep. So I think personally now this is the second time I've read this book. I read it a a long time ago. And really, this just book just reminded me of the impact it had on me then, Uh, which the impact it had on me when I first read this book was largely those uh, why I picked that quote from Jacques Vallée, it opened up the levers of imagination in my mind because growing up, I liked aliens. I saw a UFO when I was a kid at the bus stop. It got my brain going. And I thought, yeah, I want to meet space visitors. Uh, this book and works like it have opened me up to how much I don't know. I'm not saying aliens are fey. I'm not saying aliens can't be a nuts and bolts race. I'm saying that I think until we know the idea that certain uh, theories are too preposterous to consider is just lazy. It's, it's yeah. someone who doesn't want to do the work. And the work is so rewarding because even if it's not true, by expanding ourselves to even be able to conceptualize these different ideas, uh, ultra terrestrials, crypto terrestrials, we are, in a sense, improving ourselves. We are expanding our critical faculties. Um, and I did. I did. So one other thing I wanted to read, because normally I go over a little bit about the author. We already did that for the Trinity episode. So if you guys want to know about Jacques Vallée, if you don't know about him already, go back and listen to Trinity. I thought it was a fun episode. And so do most listeners. Yeah, you know, it's doing real well. Thank you to all our listeners yes, at home. Absolutely. Thank you. thank you so much. The reception has been great. We're really happy uh, that you're enjoying it. And I hope you'll continue. But I have found a quote from someone who is not enjoying it. Uh, not our podcast, but Passport to Magonia. And this is to kind of go back to where we started with how the book was received when it came out in the 60s. I found the Kirkus Review published on October 1st, 1969. And I have two quotes that I've pulled out of it. Uh, 
quote, taking a flying leap off the deep end, Mr. Valet, who did such a considered analysis of centuries of sauceritis in his anatomy of a phenomenon, plunges into pure speculative fantasy, substantiated by unsubstantiated reports of actual landings. Admittedly, it's the wildest sort of goose chase, but the believer will have the most exotic fun computing the author's parallels. And, quote, it's enough to drive you to your local witch. But then <laughs> we've just discovered a moon man. And uh, there's someone who's not playing with the levers. You know, there's someone who is unable to uh, e- entertain the absurd. And I think that that's something we all need to do. We need to have a little bit more fun with our lives, entertain the absurd, and just just keep yourself open. Hashtag be a weirdo. I would like to list the following ridiculous things that are scientific facts. There is a planet out there in the cosmos that we have observed that is made of solid diamond. We have observed quantum particles that appear to, for all intents and purposes, move backwards in time. Down here on Earth in the physical world, we have conducted a successful uterus transplant that resulted in a pregnancy that carried to term and delivered a healthy human baby. I'm really tired of the word preposterous. I'm really tired of the word impossible. Also platypuses. Yeah, What the fuck is that? God's mistake. That survived the flood and not the giants? Yeah. Wow. You guys have a magical ability to spin off into a screaming magic. No wonder you're married. Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's our show, ladies and gentlemen. So now housekeeping? Yeah, housekeeping. housekeeping. Uh, so please like, follow, subscribe. Please leave a review if you can on your chosen platform. It really does help us out. And we want to interact with you guys. We want to know you. Uh, yeah, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, the podcast has a Twitter. And like Nick said, we want to interact with you guys. So follow us on Twitter at Noctivigant Pod. And I'm at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Midwest Undead. Uh, I only use Twitter to post my own memes and commentary on said memes. Uh, I'm at Bearish Terror, and I'm not sure what I use Twitter for yet, but I talk to people. Also uh, on Tumblr, you can follow us at Noctivigant Podcast. And if you do want to send us an email about anything, likes, dislikes, book suggestions, anything, you can email us at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. And also, uh, we do have an official podcast Reddit account, user Noctivigant Podcast. If you guys want to talk to us, you can DM us there. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Oh, our next episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, next week, I will be once again hosting, and we will be returning to the world of the more mainstream supernatural with the haunting of Alma Fielding, a fascinating poltergeist case that is conveyed to us by Kate Summerscale. And, it, and I got to say, I'm already reading it, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, it is very engaging. And also, uh, a fa- another once again, another fascinating period piece. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, this is going to be a... Uh, look into 1930s uh, British uh, paranormal research and sort of the clash between the psychical society and the spiritualist movement while all while war with Germany looms on the not distant horizon. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really fun. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys will enjoy it as well. But I think that's it for today. So good night, my ghoulies. Good night, ghosties. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there, people. Stay safe safe out out there. there.
do not piss off the Morrigan. You know what? Just just to spite them, be dangerous. Be Don't dangerous. piss off Make the Morrigan. Make bad decisions. Do it. No. I'm just going to put this out there. I'm not sure that Enoch knew what he was talking about.